Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. We're broadcasting live from Washington, D.C., here on the 32nd or 33rd day of the U.S. government shutdown. A lot of news going on in the Middle East today, but first, an in-depth look on what's going on regarding American policy as it's being dictated here from Washington overseas in the Middle East. First and foremost, there has been a rapid spiraling of the situation of the United States in Syria. We find ourselves right now, last week, after that devastating suicide bombing that killed four American servicemen, dozens of Kurds, and other civilians in Manbij, that there has been a fallout in terms of the way in which the U.S. Congress is considering actions for next steps in that country. Will the president decide to continue his withdrawal? Will the Congress urge him to put the spurs on leaving American forces in that country? All of this to be discussed later today. But also going on in American Middle East policy is a rapid, not I don't want to say disagreement in terms of where we find ourselves right now with what's going on with the Israel-Palestinian conflict. But for the first time, we find ourselves having members of the House of Representatives openly advocating a boycott, a divestment, or a sanction initiative coming from the U.S. House of Representatives against the state of Israel. The news that really made the rounds this week was Representative Ilhan Omar coming from Minnesota, and also Rashida Tlaib coming from Michigan. Now, we've spoken about these two members of the House's backgrounds and how they've been related to the Israel-Palestinian question, but we first saw their statements regarding public media statements and trying to clarify some of their previous positions after facing criticism both from their Democratic allies and also from members of the Jewish community. Representative Omar went on CNN, and when she was grilled about her previous statement saying that the world was coming under the hypnotism or the hypnosis of the state of Israel, quick parallels were being drawn between those statements that she had made on Twitter back in 2012 and other statements which were of a similar vein, which had anti-Semitic tendencies, or at least those of tones. She said that she didn't understand how she could have the cross-section between what she had said seven years ago and what she had actually meant to say. From what it sounds to me, she's trying to recover and she's trying to whitewash her previous positions. More than that, she had promised during the election in 2018 that she would not endorse the BDS movement against Israel. As soon as she was sworn into office, she started coming out with statements that sounded to be the direct opposite. Tlaib is another case where during her ascendancy to power after having left the Michigan State House and the Michigan State Senate, she now finds herself in, a house, in her, her house, herself in the House of Representatives. The issue with Tlaib was that she was seen next to an openly supporting Hamas and Hezbollah fan, not having a constituent meeting, but she found herself in this meeting when she was being sworn in. The Council on American Islamic Relations had a festival that they put on for their newly elected Islamist members of Congress. And those who showed up were like a, a gallery of rogues from the who's who of American Islamism, the Amer- Islamic Council on North America, the Islamic uh, Circle of North America, Muslim Action Society, the Islamic Society of North America, the Council on American Islamic Relations, and other individuals who have been painted 
by these broad brushes of extremism, which doesn't necessarily say that they're all extremists, but they definitely have backgrounds that tend to support pathways and positions that are anathema to traditional American values. They decide to put their own perspectives as supremacist over those of the Republic. So we have on one hand a member of the House from Michigan saying that she's openly fine cavorting with terrorism supporters. And then we have another member of the House from Minnesota trying to apologize in, in, in a very, not even apologize, trying to clarify her positions in a half-hearted way as it relates to her previous statements on Israel. And both of these, I think, come to the point where we really have to worry about the fissures that are going on in American democracy. Now, we've had socialists elected before. There's even been those with communist inclinations who have served in the House of Representatives. But we have never come to a point where we had one American minority group that oversees, uh, a large majority of whom are trying to fight against another American source minority group, that of the Islamist variety against those who find themselves to be uh, philo-Semitic in one way or another, whether they be Christian or uh, Jewish or even American Muslims who have a certain affinity for the state of Israel. Now, there's a difference here between them saying, I am critical of Israel's policies. That's acceptable. Look, you don't have to agree with everything that Israel does. 90% of the Israeli public disagree with what their government does on any given day. But the second that you, A, in the Michigan case, align yourself with an individual who openly advocates for killing Jews, and two, in the Minnesota case, find yourself openly aligning your own statements to be parallel to that of the worst canards used in the modern annals of anti-Semitism, you start to have a problem. Now, this isn't a political disagreement. What this is, is it seems like an invitation to not just invite criticism of that country, but to break a vital U.S. ally's ability to defend their own positions, or to at least undermine those positions in the Middle East. So this is something that has really, really gotten attention, both at our organization here at the Middle East Forum, and it's also started drawing the attention of those in the back benches of the Democratic Party where both of these legislators come from. So another uh, fissure in that party that's not necessarily related to the Middle East, but does come back to the same fear that many of the left have as it relates to the Israel question, is the women's march that took place over the weekend. The controversy attributable to the organizers of that march was their inability to bifurcate themselves from their previous statements, not all of them, but some of their previous statements of support, for the leader of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, America's most prevalent African-American Islamist anti-Semite. Now, you had members of this group, uh, the Women's March, like Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour, both who have their own questionable past, especially on the Sarsour side, who would not openly condemn their association with this individual, having shared the stage with him, having said good uh, things about him in the past. And this caused a problem for some of the other organizers of the Women's March, especially those of the Jewish faith. We had Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the former head of the DNC, distance herself from the Women's March. We had other Jewish leaders of the Women's March also saying that they would not join these other women in Washington over the weekend. But 
just in the case of Tlaib from Michigan and the case of Omar from Minnesota, we see that across the different segments of the Democratic Party, where Israel or faith-based questions between the ability for Jews and others to intersect with one another, is start in one in, in one way, I think, ripening. There's a ripening process here of what the actors who are anti-Semitic, who are anti-Israel, and to go beyond the Jewish or Israel question, they're frankly anti-American. They are promoting positions that are against what is the large majoritarian position of people in this country who want to see a strong U.S. alliance with countries, whether it be in the Middle East or in Europe, or want to just have a, 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 a policy of sanity as it relates to our allies. And I think that as this becomes a bigger issue on the left, there's two opportunities here. For those who have democratic or liberal leanings, you have the opportunity to jettison these hate mongers from within your own ranks. And I think withdrawing from the Women's March is a good step in that direction. Start your own Women's March that's devoid of anti-Semites. Now, on the right, it's also an opportunity for those who are more conservative or find themselves in a more mainstream American position. You have the opportunity to call out the left, but also to make sure that you ensure that those who are anti-Semitic, those who are anti-Israel, those who are taking irresponsible Middle Eastern-related positions as it relates to American security and to her allies, are also being condemned. That means that if you're holding Farrakhan in the light of being someone who's an anti-Semite or a hate monger or someone who doesn't belong on the mainstream American stage, and you're condemning his allies who continue to stand with him, but also ostensibly continue to represent what they think is mainstream democratic politics, you have to do the same thing for neo-Nazis, for members of the KKK, for these sovereign defenders, and other far-rightists who are trying to bring in the same type of vitriol just through a different version of messaging. So that's the bottom line here. The left has a problem with anti-Semites, so does the right, but it's more pronounced now within the Democratic Party that these individuals have been elected to Congress. More after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, 
for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM here on Philadelphia Talk Radio. My next guest has been on the program before, and he's a well-known commodity to anybody in the counter-Islamism space, especially those who are trying to fight back here against nonsensical government behavior, funding of American Islamist institutions, and even those who are trying to look as far-flung as Bangladesh for roots of extremism that are starting to take here hold in the United States. Sam Westrop, director of the Islamist Watch program at the Middle East Forum, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Sure. So, Sam, before we get to our uh, our travails of American Islamism this week uh, here while we're broadcasting live from Washington, D.C., I know that you just went through an experience overseas with the government shutdown, with the uh, 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 sometimes defunct behavior of the State Department from Customs and, and Border Security. And I was hoping that you might be able to relate a little bit of that struggle and how your process, which followed American law, is not always applied to when it comes to some of these other more extremist individuals entering this country, trying to seek residency in the United States, and and um, and actually getting shelter, whether it be at mosques or other religious institutions. Yes, of course. So I, I recently had, uh, in, in the course of the government shutdown, I required uh, an error by the American government to be fixed. And, uh, of course, dealing with a large bureaucracy is difficult uh, most of the time. Anyway, during a government shutdown, it, it proved uh, particularly uh, difficult. Of course, this inconvenience to me is, is, is much smaller than the inconvenience to the many thousands of uh, American federal workers currently not being paid. But um, uh, it is remarkable uh, from my perspective as a British citizen how difficult it can sometimes be to deal with the government, to deal with uh, visa issues, immigration issues. That is in stark contrast, it has, uh, appears to me, to the plight of Islamist extremists, especially Islamist clerics around the world, who seem to be able to move to the United States for both non-immigrant and immigrant purposes with uh, a surprising amount of ease. I say surprising given that Islamism has dominated news headlines almost every day for the last uh, uh, 18 years, uh, it seems remarkable that clerics can come and go into this country. Now, of course, clerics have their own visa, a religious workers visa, that uh, allows them to, to move to the United States with relative ease, at least compared to, say, an H-1B visa or these other uh, basic work visas that, that hundreds, thousands of people use each year. Now, I think a really good example of this is I'm, I'm speaking to you from Boston, and just uh, uh, about 10, 20 miles uh, from me is a mosque called the Islamic Center of New England. Now, the imam there, uh, until a few years ago, uh, was a pretty well-known uh, uh, cleric in New England called Hafiz Saeed. And he ran this mosque. Uh, for many years. He got rid of the old imam, who many thought was a moderate, and ran this mosque and brought in a number of extremist speakers and talked a number of extremist ideas, according to his, his congregants. It was then emerged um, about five years ago that he was the brother of the leader of Lashkar-e-Taiba, the Pakistani terrorist group, a designated terrorist group, 
under US law. So, so hold on, hold on a second, hold on a second. We have a, or, or we had at one time, a member of a Boston suburban mosque who, in the course of filling out his paperwork for gaining admittance into this country, involves a background check. And he would ostensibly have to put down members of his family who he's related to on that background check. Yet, his brother ends up being the heads of one of the largest terror extremist organizations in Central Asia, and he is allowed into the United States. That, that's right. And it, by the way, the, the brother isn't just some random terrorist official of a, a small little terror group. As you say, it's one of the largest terrorist organizations in Pakistan, certainly the most prominent. But more than that, his brother is perhaps the most famous terrorist in Pakistan. Uh, his, his activities dominate Pakistani news headlines most weeks. Um, I'm afraid the story gets a little worse. Uh, after it was exposed that uh, this, this, this guy's brother was the head of a Pakistani terrorist group, the, the imam here in, in, in Boston said, look, I don't share any of my brother's views. I don't agree with him. I haven't seen him in many, many years. Then, a few years later, he moves back to Pakistan. And guess what he does the day after he returns? He becomes the spokesperson for his brother's terrorist group, really for the, one of the arms of his brother's terrorist group, a group called Jamaat al-Dawa. And I think this highlights two things. One, the problem, as we said earlier, the problem with current vetting procedures for, for both immigrant and non-immigrant visas in this country, but also the duplicity of Islamism and the gullibility of the media. This guy told them, I have nothing to do with my brother. He returns to Pakistan. He joins his brother's terrorist group. Becomes an official spokesperson. Uh, that says a lot. So you have a normal lawful resident of the United States of the highest caliber in his profession, I'm talking about you here, and you follow the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, and because of a U.S. government error, you find yourself on hold. But like a normal law-abiding citizen, resident, you wait your turn in line. But then, when it comes to individuals who are either related to terrorists or related to extremists, maybe they have their own background and they mask it, they go to some of the most nefarious and and inculcating extremist institutions in the Islamic world and they get the red carpet treatment when they come to the United States and only get caught after they find themselves embroiled in some sort of scandal ipso facto after they arrive in the United States. How can that system be fixed? It really involves a better, uh, more aggressive vetting procedure. Um, uh, too often, I suspect, much of this vetting work relies on, on trust and a failure to follow up on information. There needs to be, there needs to be more, more, more scrutiny. And yes, there's uh, millions of people apply for visas each year. Tens of thousands of people apply for green cards each year. It's a lot of work, but it just needs to be done. Too often, we see extremist Islamists from around the world coming into the U.S. to apply their ideology. Uh, and occasionally to to bring violence to 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 these shores. Uh, this work has to be done. It just has to be done. There must also, I suspect, be a review of the religious workers visa and the the greater ease with which clerics, uh, radical imams, can can use this 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 uh, uh, golden ticket visa to to enter the U.S. Uh, with with certainly it seems less scrutiny than other visa classes. But Sam, th this this issue of ignorance. It's not just related to the immigration system, 
the work that you've been doing over the past two or three months, and we've spoken about this on the program before, but we've talked about the impact, not about the, the ways to, to, to fix government ignorance as it relates to systemic blindness that they have towards Islamist, I don't want to call it intrusion, but sort of the apathy that the United States government has towards Islamist institutions. You have raised uh, uh, a lot of questions regarding the USA Spending Database, which is the, the catalog of all the grants and government contracts that goes out from the U.S. government to third-party partners, whether they be in the public or private sector, domestic or foreign. You have looked at programs from the Department of Homeland Security that has funded American Islamist organizations. And your latest is exposing not just taxpayer funding of Islamist institutions as it related to World Vision, which is the, um, the U.S.'s largest evangelical charity partnering with an al-Qaeda affiliate in Sudan, but now you've been able to uncover U.S. government spending from the prison service, from other government departments of known American extremist organizations. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and what the government should do, or at least what our listeners can do in demanding accountability from their elected representatives and from those who serve us, even though they're not getting paid right now, but when they do go back to work, what yes, can they demand absolutely. to hold them accountable? Absolutely. So, unfortunately, uh, you know, this is a. I, I I come from the United Kingdom, where the head of state, the Queen, is also head of the church. This country and and France are the really the only secular countries in the world, and I, I think many people accept the division of church and state. Where, where where that doesn't seem to apply is when it comes to mosque and state. We have uncovered uh, millions and millions of dollars of U.S. government funding going to uh, uh, Islamist institutions and problematic mosques uh, uh, just over the last few years. And let me give you the two worst examples. Uh, millions have gone to Islamic relief. Uh, this is a global uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood-led charity that operates all around the world, but particularly in the Gaza Strip. Uh, where a, a recent Islamist Watch report found that it seems to be funding institutions controlled closely by the designated terrorist organization Hamas. Islamic Relief does not really hide its agenda. Its founder, Kani Albana, went on Hamas radio just a few years ago to uh, uh, applaud charitable institutions working with the Hamas government. Again, I remind your listeners, Hamas is a designated terror organization. Islamic Relief has received well over a million dollars from the U.S. government, who seem to regard it as some reputable, moderate, charitable organization. And all that money is doing is giving credibility to an extremist strain of Islam, and thus, by the way, sidelining true moderates uh, who may actually want to work with government, uh, but also giving money ultimately, uh, because money, especially in the world of charitable finance, is fungible, Ultimately, the U.S. government is helping a large network subsidize uh, extremism and terror. Uh, and this is an enormous problem. The, this figure, though, just over a million dollars, is dwarfed in comparison to the amount given to another group called the Islamic Circle of North America. This is an enormous Muslim community institution that also functions as a proxy for a South Asian extremist network called Jamaat-e-Islami. 
Now, the Jamaat Islami, think of it as the South Asian version of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, unlike the Muslim Brotherhood, though, it is much more open about its links to, to violence. Jamaat Islami is linked to terror and, and, and uh, riotous behavior and, and other extremes and all across Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. Um, now, in the U.S., uh, the Islamic Circle of North America, or ICNA, is one of the leading promoters of, of, of hate speakers, of, of radical clerics, of teaching radical ideas through youth programs to, to young Muslims. Uh, it has a, 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 an arm in this country called ICNA Relief, a sort of domestic charitable arm, that has received almost $10 million from the U.S. government for uh, disaster relief work. Now, there's, there's no doubt, I mean, there's almost no doubt that this money did go to disaster relief work. But what the U.S. government is doing by funding this radical pro proxy for a radical South Asian Islamist group is giving legitimacy to an extremist strain of, of Islam. It is telling American Muslims, we, the American government, recognize this minority extremist group as your leader. And we're going to give them the money and the political credibility uh, to proclaim themselves as your leader. This is the worst thing that could happen in the battle between moderate Islam and radical Islam. The government has chosen the radicals to fund and, and support. I'm afraid this has not just occurred under previous administrations. It is continuing under the Trump administration. Uh, so this is a problem for all parties, for, for, for all peoples. Uh, it's something that needs to be clamped down on uh, very fast, because I, as I mentioned before, I, I come from the UK. One of the things that the UK government now recognizes was its most disastrous approach was giving money to so-called non-violent Islamists uh, over the course of, of, of 10, 15 years. It is now recognized in Britain that increased the extremism problem. It, it exacerbated the radicalization and terror problem. We have to stop funding extremists. It's a very basic idea, but unfortunately, the American government has not yet grasped it. Now, you're scratching the surface as it relates to uh, Islamic relief and also to the Islamic Circle of North America's charitable relief. How endemic do you think these patterns are, not just at the federal level, but in terms of state cooperation? And, and what are you doing to not just uh, call out these groups, but to make sure that you're mapping the entire country, maybe even you're going international, to help identify the groups, the governments that are funding them and ways to shut them down? Yeah, so um, there, there are two elements here. Firstly, let me say that American Islam is, is very diverse. There are many different groups competing with each other, different cultural groups, ethnic, political, religious. Uh, there, is no, there is no single Muslim voice. And part of our work at Islamist Watch is to understand the lay of the land when it comes to Islam, because we, 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 we think that only when you, firstly, do you understand Islamism, can you fight Islamism, but also if you understand Islam, then you can understand who the bad guys are. And, 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 and let's let's are. make that disclaimer for a second, that we believe a, a, a great majority of American Muslims are not of this variety. We have 3,000 serving in the U.S. Armed Forces, thousands serving as doctors, as lawyers, and as members participating in civil society, basketball team members, even one right now in New York City that's been threatened by another um, individual uh, that in, in one way or another is, is feeling afraid to leave the United States because he might be subject to an assassination campaign by the president of Turkey. So let's make that divide between us recognizing the good work of, 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 of law-abiding Muslims that may disagree with us on some political items and those that Islamist Watch focuses on 
which are American Islamists. That, that's exactly right. And, and it is precisely by mapping American Islam that we can now go to policymakers, go to the media, go to the public, go to your listeners and say, these are the good groups, these are the bad groups. Uh, this is the only way that this, this scourge of extremism and terrorism can be tackled is by understanding the forces that work within uh, Western is, Islam. So that, that's exceptionally important for us. But the, the, the other huge complication here is the influence of foreign states, as you, you mentioned earlier. And I think most of your listeners will be somewhat comfortable with the idea that for years Saudi Arabia has funded radicalism in the West. And that, that is true. That is true. But in recent years, there, a very significant switch has been going on. We are increasingly seeing the growth of Qatari patronage within Western Muslim circles. We're increasingly seeing the growth of Turkish regime influence in Western Muslim circles. Now prominent um, uh, American Islamist organizations, like the ones I've mentioned, the Islamic Circle of North America and even Islamic Relief, we see them have a much closer relationship with Qatari regime entities. We see Turkish regime officials speak at the biggest uh, Muslim conference in America, which just took place in, in Chicago a, a, a few weeks ago. Uh, we are seeing uh, the replacement of Saudi Arabia by Turkey and Qatar as the chief funders and financiers and supporters and, and ideological advocates of, of Islamism in the West. Uh, so what seems like a domestic issue is very much also a, a geopolitical issue. Sam, thank you. We're going to ask you that you stay on the line when we're joined by Winfield Myers, the director of Campus Watch, and we're going to try a new segment after the break. We're basically going to have you with your expertise on Islamism, especially here in the United States, Winfield with his expertise on campus activity as it relates to Middle East and Islamic Studies departments, the latest from Washington policy that I'll be bringing to you, and we're actually going to try to put together a radio-based think tank in the next 20 minutes. Does it sound good? It sounds great. All right, more after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. I'm here with Winfield Myers, the director of Campus Watch, and Sam Westrop, the director of Islamist Watch, two projects of the Middle East Forum. So we have a special segment this morning on the bottom half of the hour where an issue that has been, uh, in one way or another, challenging some of our policy think tankers here, our policymakers and, recommend, and, 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 and recommended experts at the Middle East Forum to try to address an issue that I believe has been plaguing American higher education, not just for the past six or seven years, but for decades. The background of the problem is like this. Foreign governments, many who have only noble ambitions, have been underwriting American higher education even since the beginning of the 20th century whether it was uh, science agreements signed between the then Prussian Republic and the United States of America, whether it was French and English intellectuals who were trying to open up their own programs here in the United States, or if it was U.S. government-funded programs trying to promote academic cooperation with universities overseas. But the activities, as it relates to the issues that we deal with, Middle East and Islamic studies here in the United States, and their sponsors has been serving a appetizer for extremism as it's related to the normalization of these positions since arguably the father of Orientalist studies, that of Edward Said, who was a, uh, a professor here on the East Coast, and he was sort of the godfather of many of the Middle East and Islamic studies professors and departments that exist throughout the U.S. right now, started getting underwritten by Middle Eastern and other Muslim government extremist programs. So we have a few. We had the Alawid bin Talal Center at Georgetown University, which was funded by a, a, a Saudi prince, which seemed to normalize Islamism in this country. We had programs that were meant to denigrate Israel and America's Middle East policies, whether it be at UCLU, UCLA or Columbia University or Northwestern or even at the University of Texas A&M. But the biggest proponent uh, after we've seen the Saudis somewhat scale back their sponsorship of American extremist programs in higher education over the last six or seven years has been the country of Qatar. This is the small Gulf-based emirate responsible for anti-Semitism, uh, hosting the Taliban, uh, paying off money to Hezbollah, underwriting Hamas, getting closer to Iran. And all at the same time, we have American professors and deans taking hundreds of millions of dollars from this emirate while American college campuses like Georgetown, like Carnegie Mellon, like Texas A&M have set up their own campuses in Qatar's capital of Doha. Now, according to a uh, piece of legislation that was passed in 2009, 2010, we know how much the Qatari government is giving to American institutions to underwrite their programs there that they sponsor, but we have no idea of the contractual terms of the agreements that the universities entered themselves into over the conditions that professors are able to work over what specific programs are being funded and over what the academic work product that's coming out of there is being shaped by the funders of these programs. So I'm going to ask Winfield first to present the challenges of foreign funding of universities, or at least the lack of transparency in that funding. And then Sam is going to tell us about the 
actual background of the main sponsor of these programs, the, the Cutter Foundation International, QFI. And then the three of us, hopefully with listener participation, if you guys want to call in on the number, we'll give that to you after Sam and Winfield are done their briefings, we'll be able to come up with a policy that will eventually come before either the House uh, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee or a subcommittee dealing with higher education. So now we enter the think tank. Win, you're up. All right, Greg, thanks. Um, the principal problem that anyone doing research on foreign funding of American universities will discover is that there is an utter lack of transparency uh, when it comes to foreign giving. There's a requirement that universities must disclose gifts of a quarter million dollars or more. And that's all well and good. And you can go to the uh, Department of Education's website and download an Excel sheet and see who gave what to whom. The problem is that it doesn't list, because there's no law forcing it to, the ultimate recipient of that money. And so you'll know, for example, that uh, Qatar or the Saudis or others gave, let's say, a $30 million gift to Georgetown University. But you don't know whether that's going to support their campus in Doha or whether it's going to pay the tuition of uh, Native students who have come over to Georgetown to study, or whether it's going to engineering or science, petroleum, geology, this kind of thing, or whether it's going to Middle East studies, because there is no requirement that the department, uh, the center, the program, or the individual professor, the recipient of the grant, the grantee, be listed. And this makes getting into the nitty-gritty of recipients virtually impossible. It leaves the transparency issue up to the university. If the university wants to release a press release and, and crow about having uh, X amount of dollars given to it, it can do so. But if it wants to be underhanded and remain in the shadows, it can do that too. So Winfield, just tell us about one or two professors or programs that have produced intellectual material or pseudo-intellectual material that are anathematic to American interests. Well, you, you've touched on one already. The Lead Center at Georgetown um, produces material frequently, both in the form of written, of classroom material, of teaching, uh, of the panels of the various conferences that they hold <clears throat> that are absolutely antithetical to uh, American foreign policy interests, American security interests at home. Um, the director of the Lead Center now is a man named Jonathan Brown, who is an Islamist, I would argue. He's not, he is a convert to Islam. That doesn't make him an Islamist, of course, but he is an Islamist. He is married to the daughter of Sami al-Aryan, the former University of South Florida professor who was expelled to Turkey in 2015, earlier had been convicted for funneling money to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. So it's all in the family with a person like that, and that gives you an idea of if the director of the $20 million program is that kind of person, you can imagine the kind of programming that he's going to insist upon that he's going to sponsor. So uh, Georgetown is, I think, for us, uh, ground zero for this. It's such an influential school. The location couldn't be better from Leeds' point of view. It couldn't be worse from ours. And that's an excellent example of it. All right. Thank you, Wynn. So, so Sam, who exactly, using our example of the Cutter Foundation International, are these guys? And, 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 and why are they bad news for American higher education? Yeah, Qatar Foundation International is perhaps the most important example of malign influence, foreign malign influence in the U.S. educational system. Uh, the Qatar Foundation International, or QFI, was set up in 2007. It is the American arm of the Qatar Foundation, which is a Qatari government body uh, that uh, is uh, 
I mean, it, it, its wealth is absolutely enormous. Its budget is decided by the Qatari cabinet. Its spending is in the tens of billions um, uh, around the world. Uh, QFI uh, does one thing in the U.S. It seeks to influence how Arabic and the Middle East is taught uh, in American schools, K-12 schools, but also in American campuses. It also acts as a sort of ambassador for its parent organization, wooing uh, American universities to develop closer ties uh, with Doha uh, and even convincing some to set, as you mentioned earlier, to set up campuses in the uh, what's called Education City. In, in So, in, so in wait, wait, wait a second. Are they acting as a PR firm? And, and basically underwriting Qatar's sponsorship of extremism in other countries, or do they actually produce good results sometimes? That they are. I, 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 your PR firm description is, is 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 a good one because actually that is one of their functions. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't admit to it, but it is. Uh, they quite clearly function as uh, uh, an advertisement for Qatari uh, benevolence and uh, as an advertisement for Qatari. I did. Now, this, the evidence of this can be best found in the curricula of Qatar Foundation International encourages public schools in the U.S. to embrace their lesson plans that, that, the, that the Islamist Watch uncovered included uh, ones titled uh, Express Your Loyalty to Qatar. You know, there's no, there's no doubt there that uh, that's a pretty strong pro-Qatari message. But then it goes also to far-left, anti-American, uh, anti uh, Semitic ideas as well, lessons encouraging American school children to imagine that uh, they were Israeli soldiers who had just murdered a Palestinian child, and how does that make you feel? You know, it, it, this is this is something that, that the Qatar Foundation International is spending millions on in this country and bringing to K to twelve schools uh, around the nation. On, on campuses, um, uh, the actual uh, minutiae of the efforts uh, are, are some more opaque for precisely the, the reason that, that uh, Winfield mentioned, which is that we're not sure of the purpose of, of the grants that U.S. universities take. We can sometimes see examples in, uh, say, a chair that's set up or when a university establishes an overseas campus in, in Qatar, but for the most part, there are tens and tens of millions of dollars going into U.S. campuses, and we're, we're not sure what uh, is being done with it. Based on the Qatar Foundation International's ideology and its it's, it's curricula for K-12 schools, our very strong belief is that its university influence is just as problematic. So let's deal with the oppositionist argument for a second. Middle East, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Middle East Forum, you're against engagement with the Arab world. You're against engagement with the Islamic world. You're offering xenophobic positions by only, or, or, or this made-up word of Islamophobic positions by only going after Qatar. What do you say about us trying to expand our academic horizons and, and engaging in the U.S.-Qatari relationship through education rather than the accusations that you just made? How would you both respond to that? Let's start with Winfield. Well, I would say if we're going to have relations with any country, those relations must rest on a foundation of truth. They can't rest on a foundation of propaganda. It has to rest on uh, accurate, rigorous scholarship, uh, realistic expectations of, of what, in fact, life there is like, what the country is like, what its economy, its future, uh, its society is like, its culture. Uh, it can't be based on uh, rosy scenarios uh, put forward through the propagandistic type of uh, 
foundation money that Sam has just been uh, discussing. So, uh, you know, of course we want to engage in them, but only through the truth, only accurately, only in a way that will help our country, not in a way that simply lead, lends uh, credibility to their propagandistic efforts. Sam? Yes, I, I, one of the arguments wielded by Islamists uh, across the, the, the world, but especially in America for, for many years, has been that if you don't engage with us, you are therefore rejecting all Muslims, you are therefore promoting an Islamic phobic agenda. I mean, that is, an, um, that is obvious uh, sophistry. Um, there are plenty of moderate Muslims one can work with, just as there are plenty of moderate Muslim nations one can work with. So the idea that by not working with Qatar we are somehow rejecting the Islamic world is, of course, preposterous, but unfortunately it's an argument that we're increasingly seeing. That said, even with an extremist regime in Qatar, some level of cultural uh, 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 some level of a cultural relationship can still exist, of course, but the Qatar Foundation is not the vehicle for that, and they have made that patently clear. Uh, one interesting point, I think, that reveals the, the pure ideological fervor of the Qatar Foundation and, and its U.S. arm uh, was uh, after the recent brutal killing of Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, Saudi journalist who was uh, murdered in uh, the, uh, the Saudi Arabia's Turkish embassy. Uh, in the course of the investigations and reporting afterwards, it had emerged that Khashoggi, who wrote for the, uh, the, uh, the Washington Post, it emerged that the head of the Qatar Foundation International, a, a, a woman named Maggie Salem, actually was partly responsible for, and I, I, I quote the word, shaping uh, Khashoggi's columns. Now, Khashoggi's columns were about the evils of Saudi Arabia and the uh, goodness of the Muslim Brotherhood. These were highly politicized columns, and it now turns out that the head emissary of, of, of Qatar's soft power in America was partly responsible for shaping these ideas. So wait uh, a second. They're not just clear. underwriting American higher education. They're underwriting anti-American ally dissidents sitting in Washington, D.C., writing for the Washington Post. So what is it? Are they a PR firm? Or are they a firm trying to provide funding for higher education? So now we see that these tentacles, not just trying to influence our higher education institutions or institutes of higher education, are also being caught red-handed, literally writing the talking points of anti-American positions. Now, that is one, I think, drastic example of this. But let's say we're now sitting in front of the uh, House of Representatives, or we're sitting in front of the Secretary of Education, Winfield, I know you've been to both the White House and the Department of Education. What's the argument that you're going to make to these legislators, to these members of the executive branch, and what the U.S. government should be doing to urge or require more transparency? What kind of policy do you think you're going to put forward, which is going to get what we're just talking about, to solve the solutions of the lack of transparency from these Middle Eastern autocracies and underwriting what is supposed to be a Western liberal educational establishment? We need, we need legislative changes that require universities to disclose the recipient of foreign funds, regardless of where these foreign funds come from. We don't want them to just to be Qatari. It doesn't matter who uh, the, the donee is, who the, who the nation is giving is. Um, so this goes under Title VI of the Higher Education Act. Uh, not Title VI of the Department of Justice, which is civil rights, but another Title VI. And 
there have been efforts to change this in various ways over the years. It's been up for reauthorization since 2013. Who knows it will be reauthorized again this year. But the requirement, it, it just can be done. This is not an impossible feat. The main opponent of this, of course, is going to be the higher education years on, on lobbying Congress. Uh, remember, millions of dollars years on, on lobbying Congress. Uh, remember, virtually every university in the country gets millions and millions of federal aid every year. And so they are feeding at the public trough there uh, annually for all sorts of programs, student aid, you name it, buildings, everything uh, comes out of the federal trough. And they're going to push back very hard against this because they are happy to take money from anywhere. They've proved that already. They have no scruples for the most part. And if they take money from a QFI, that's fine with them because it's, it's more money for them. It's all fungible. It goes into their accounts, and whatever money QFI gives them releases money for something else, or they can uh, build on their uh, campuses abroad or do whatever they want to do with it. But the, the disclosure has to be written into law by Congress, passed and signed into law. It has to be a legislative act. Otherwise, they're certainly never going to do it voluntarily. I don't think all the public pressure in the world is going to force them to do that. It hasn't so far. Every indication is it won't in the future. Sam, I was speaking about why exactly we have the ability and the need to have uh, foreign funders of universities register under the Foreign Agent Registration Act rather than just for political means. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely. And it really falls down to the uh, uh, malign influence of foreign states on uh, uh, education courses, specifically Middle Eastern courses, but not limited to that. Arabic as well, discussion of uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict, discussion of domestic policy where it relates to Islam or extremism. All these areas are, uh, uh, in all these areas, we can find examples of foreign states trying to impose their own agenda. And Qatar and Turkey are, are particularly good uh, 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 examples. Uh, we, we spoke earlier about uh, the Qatar Foundation and, and its U.S. arm, Qatar Foundation International. Uh, as I said before, the, the curriculum, the, the curricula they offer demonstrates this intent to uh, uh, impose a new narrative, uh, a narrative that distinctly serves the, an, an Islamist uh, agenda. Uh, and so nothing could be more vital at this point than transparency, especially for those public universities that are taking foreign money. Now, Texas A&M is a particularly interesting example of, of this. It has a campus in Doha uh, in, in this place called Education City that the Qatar Foundation runs. And by the way, this, this, this Education City in, in Doha is notorious for the number of extremist preachers from around the Arab world that are brought in to lecture uh, within the campus halls at the uh, uh, the mosques and in other venues as, as, as well. So students who attend American public universities uh, and go to the campus abroad are being directly exposed to the most virulent Islamism that Qatar can offer. And let us remind uh, our listeners that Qatar is one of the chief financiers of terror finance in, in the world today. Now, right now, there's a uh, lawsuit going on with Texas A&M. Uh, uh, yeah, Sam, Sam I, don't, I don't want to just hear about the lawsuit that the uh, Freedom of Information Act request was made by the Zahur organization, but if you can tell us a little bit about that, but also the intransigence that the Qataris have been willing to put out in terms of legal fees and also other sorts of manipulations to try to protect the information and why you think they're protecting it. Right, exactly. So um, uh, 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 recently, or at least 
uh, quite a while ago now, half a year ago, uh, a group uh, called the Zakor Group uh, attempted to find out what exactly uh, the Qatar Foundation was funding uh, at Texas A&M, at their, their main campus here in the United States. Um, this lawsuit led to a response from the Qataris. Now, now, first of all, let's say this is a very reasonable request. Texas A&M is a public university, and it is subject to Freedom of Information uh, Act request. Uh, the taxpayer should know uh, how its public institutions are, if its public institutions are taking money from foreign regimes and, and what that money is going towards. The Qatar Foundation responded to this Freedom uh, uh, of Information Act request by, uh, uh, with its own legal challenge, calling on Texas A&M to, uh, 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 to not put out this information, to not release that, this information. And that lawsuit is going on right now. But this speaks as to the, uh, uh, the danger of, of the Qatar Foundation, the danger of the Qatari regime. What exactly are they teaching students? Uh, what exactly, what area of, of U.S. college education are they funding that they do not want American citizens to know about? Now, if this is merely a cultural exchange, one would think they have little to fear. What this speaks to uh, is the idea that Qatar is using this money to force public institutions or to convince public institutions in the U.S. to teach the Qatari Islamist agenda, whether that's about the Middle East or uh, uh, Islam in the United States or uh, merely teaching Arabic and discussing uh, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We just don't know. Uh, and this is why what Winfield uh, discussed earlier, the importance of transparency with this Title VI reform, is so vitally important. Until that reform happens, we are going to be Islamist Watch and uh, the Middle East Forum is going to be submitting more freedom of information at request to public universities all across the country. We're going to find out and we're going to fight to find out what the Qatari regime and other Islamist regimes in the world are funding in the American public sphere. And that's why I want our listeners to understand that we get on this program every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern not just to explore the issues of the day, but we hash out ideas. We put policy recommendations together. We enact action, whether it be in the form of lawsuits or of campaigns or of our own PR pitches, which are trying to convince not just you you, you who are listening, but also the wider American public that there really is a problem here, but there is a solution in sight as well. Winfield, you want to give us a minute just on terms of what your next steps are for this, and then Sam, maybe you follow up and we'll close the program. Yeah, our next steps are going to be to um, research and put together a plan for uh, including language uh, for going to the Department of Education, going to the White House, the executive branch, to educate them, their staff, and others on the need for these changes to demonstrate precisely what needs to be changed uh, within the uh, legislation itself, but also to argue more broadly, as we have done this morning, um, why these changes are so vital, why foreign powers should not be able to surreptitiously fund radicalism in American universities, be they private or public. And uh, Sam, how's IW going to impact this? Well, aside from the uh, uh, planned series of Freedom of information requests we are going to be submitting and uh, undoubtedly contesting uh, across the country to uncover Qatari 
influence. We're also going to be looking at Islamist involvement with these public universities. And that I'm talking about domestic Islamist involvement, perhaps some of the groups I mentioned earlier on the, on the previous segment. Traditionally, when foreign Islamist states funds a U.S. institution, domestic Islamists also get involved, especially those ones that agree or are supported by the, the foreign Islamist state's agenda. Uh, our bet is that uh, public universities across this country that are taking Qatari money are also giving platforms to Islamists, and we're going to find out who and uh, bring it to the public's attention. I can hear the uh, Qatari government cutting checks now to their dozens of lobbyists and spinners and PR reps getting ready for our campaign. <laughs> Uh, Winfield on campus, Sam on domestic Islamism. Thanks for joining us this morning. The Middle East Thank you. And that's it for the Middle East Forum's Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Thanks for joining us this week. Thanks to Delaney Janchik for our production. And also thanks to all of you for listening. Have a great week and tune in next week for more on the Middle East.